Hi, Filmatics. Thank you everyone for tuning in and welcome back to part two with John Edward. We are going to be talking about how John moved from Kentucky and has become an amazing uh, writer and working in the animation field with uh, top Disney legacy properties such as Frozen, The Incredibles, Wreck-It Ralph, and we'll find out what he's working on if we're allowed to hear anything about what he's working on. Uh, luminous I will, blue. I will tell you as much as I can. <laughs> I, I've actually checked with my partners to make sure <laughs> I can push it right up to the limit without doing a Tom Holland or a Mark Ruffalo and like spoiling everything. But, um, <laughs> yeah. And um, where are you tuning in live with us today from? I am in Pacifica, California, which if people are not familiar, it's about 15 minutes south of San Francisco. So. Yeah. If I were in LA, it'd be like saying I'm in uh, Glendale. So, for oh. reference. <laughs> okay. Well, John, uh, you um, live in Pacifica with your three children, one dog and a snake. They snake. <laughs> oh, you have a slithering, 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 slitherer in your house. <laughs> well, you know, she's she's fairly slithery, but uh, <laughs> she gets out and gets a little exercise i have one one daughter in particular who who takes her out and gives her some exercise and walks around the house with her around her neck and just lets her <laughs> climb around it's actually you know it's funny it's actually really relaxing really? people may not that but it's like having a velvet rope <laughs> pulled across your skin it's actually it's very soothing actually to have a snake kind of <laughs> a corn snake so you know there are no teeth really it's it's a very very um, docile, you know, human-friendly kind of snake. It's not like a ball python or something. That <laughs> might just, yeah. Well, I'll take your word for it that you're you're, you're <laughs> am I, I'm, I'm, I'm still I'm still here after five years of with you know living with the snake, so it can't be that dangerous. Oh, I hope it's okay to call her slithery. I mean, <laughs> oh sure, that's what, that's what she does. Please don't be offended. <laughs> what's her cute? Oh name? no, she's fine. What's her name? Her name is Flajunia, <laughs> well, uh, well, well. which is is actually not a foreign name. It's just Flash Junior, but over time, it's just sort of gotten mushed together. We just call her Flajunia because okay. it, it sounds much more exotic. You know, <laughs> like the kind of thing someone in the industry ought to have. I have an exotically named snake. Um, so, yeah. so I want to ask you. So, you actually went to school. Um, you said in Pittsburgh, right? Yeah, I did my graduate work at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, or Carnegie Mellon, depending on how you pronounce it. But uh, yeah, I lived in Pittsburgh for about two years while I was in graduate school, a little bit longer. Um, and then ultimately from there, um, came out to L.A. Yeah, and then you, and, and can you tell your story? You, you heard, did you, you, where on campus did you hear Ralph Guggenheim, co-founder? Oh, this... This is a this is a very cool story. Um, so I'm graduate school, and think at that point I was thinking about beginning to I had the first sort of inklings that I might want to actually go west and get into entertainment and not into a more corporate communications kind of career, which is actually what my my background was. Um, Ralph Guggenheim's a fellow alum of Carnegie and he's the co-founder and VP of Pixar was a producer on the original Toy Story and had come back to campus to give a talk because Toy Story had come out hadn't been out that long I don't think 
And so he came back, was just talking about the industry and his experience and that sort of thing. And so I sat in on the, on the talk and that was literally the moment I decided um, that I would come West. That was literally the moment my career path began. He at one point said, you know, we could have done Toy Story for $5. And he said, of course, it would have been a very different look, <laughs> but it would have been the story. And he said, story is the beginning of everything. You know, story is where everything starts. And I have remembered that moment. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he, he said lots of other interesting things, but it was like that whole thing just sort of condensed right into that one statement. And at that point, I knew I wanted to come west and tell stories. And so I did what is considered sort of like the cliche thing. I uh, Once I graduated, I packed up whatever would fit in my car. And I can tell you that not a whole lot fits in a Toyota Corolla. <laughs> and drove west. And whatever, you know, whatever didn't fit, I either gave away, sold, or even just left in the dumpster. I just, I, you know, I didn't have anywhere to put it. So it either came or it didn't. And so I drove across the country, got to Hollywood, and slept on the couch of someone I barely knew, but who was also another alum. Um, oh, all right, hold on. There's, <laughs> there's, there's a street sweeper going by outside. Sorry, I don't know if you're, I don't know if everybody can hear that, but in case there was some interruption. Um, so I got out, sat out, you know, I, I slept on a couch. Uh, for about two months or so. It seemed wow. like it was about two You months. actually slept on a lum's couch that you kind of sort of knew, which is kind of sort of new. And uh, and then you know, I spent my days exploring Hollywood, um, trying to make connections, trying to get a job, that sort of thing. And the first job I got was as a PA in a little boutique production house. And it was just enough to i made just enough money to get a place of my own and so i did i got a, a little studio apartment in beverly hills and when i say i got a studio apartment i mean that literally i got nothing else no <laughs> furniture or whatever i had just the space and i i literally slept on the floor um but it was my floor until i eventually you know got secondhand like futons and stuff you know piecemeal and then uh, eventually got my first studio job. I was working as an assistant at 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment. But one of the coolest things about that job was I worked, I can actually say that I worked in the Nakatomi Plaza building from Die Hard. Oh, wow. Because that's where our offices were located. <laughs> the, the unfinished floor where Bruce Willis has his... Um, where he spends a lot of the movie actually, and he has a big gun battle up there and everything. That was our floor because by the time I was there, that had been finished and everybody had moved in. But, and it wasn't actually until sometime later that I realized I worked in the Nakatomi Plaza building, but that was a, that was a lot of fun to tell people back home. You know, he moved out West and now he works on the Nakatomi Plaza building. <laughs> the Die Hard, Yeah. It's a, it's a the Die Hard building. building. Yeah. So that was pretty, you know, little things like that were always fun. Uh, especially to tell people back home. I didn't know anybody out West. I don't have any family or any, anything out West at that point. You know, I have lots of friends and, and stuff now, 
But at the time, everybody was back east. And so they, you know, they would love to hear about adventures or misadventures or any little thing, any little story I could tell them because it was, you know, nobody they knew had ever done anything quite like that. And they were terrified for me, too. Yeah. You know? This was not. This is not your typical nine to five sort of existence when you come out to to uh, Hollywood. No matter what you do, right? It's as you know, and as a lot of people listening probably know, there's a lot of rejection. There's a lot of hard times and uncertainty, and you know, you don't you don't come out and get a four hundred one k right off and health insurance or whatever. You just kind of have to. You just do whatever you have to do, right? So. But uh, so I got out there, got out here rather. And uh, one of the first things I did, you know, when I wasn't working to make a paycheck is I was constantly writing. I was looking for, you know, networks to make, you know, network connections to make anything I could do. And one of the best things I did was I joined a writer's lab since I knew at that point I wanted to be a writer, not an actor or whatever. Uh, I joined the Cornet Writers Lab in Los Angeles. And was a member there the entire time I lived in L.A. And it was probably one of the single best things I ever did because I continued to learn my craft. I learned how to critique. I learned how to give a critique. I learned how to take a critique um, and think more critically and deeply about the story. And, of course, made, you know, and how to make connections and how to pitch and all of that sort of thing. Um, and that probably was one of the like i said the things that helped me the most the skills i learned there the things i learned there were probably the things that helped me the most when i was pitching and writing and presenting myself and trying to get work and and everything as a matter of fact at the end of every meeting we'd meet like every tuesday night at the, at the end of every meeting our moderator would say <laughs> his final words to us were go out get work <laughs> So was that at the uh, Cornet Theater on La Cienega? Did y'all meet? Yeah, it, it, uh, it was. Yeah, it was. Actually. It was right. We started out in the little black box of the Cornet. And then later on, we moved in up above the main theater. And then since then, it's it's actually moved to different locations. It's still called the Cornet Writers Lab. But yeah, it, it, it was the Cornet Writers Lab because it was in the Cornet Theater back on La Cienega. Yeah, it was run by some like TV actors, right? Or some big people. Yeah, um, who was it? It was, well, originally it was called the Playwrights Kitchen Ensemble because of the initials PKE. Uh, it was Patchett Kaufman Entertainment. Okay. Uh, Brad Patchett, I think, and I don't know who the Kaufman was. Um, but yeah, but you're right. They were, they were run by actors and producers who, who actually, I think that if I'm not mistaken, owned the theater and ran the theater group, you know, out of it. Yeah, that and it's, it, it has since grown to be its own thing now, but that's where, it, that's where it all started there on La Cienega. Yeah. Cause I remember dropping off my resume there as an actor and, um, oh, and, yeah. and yeah. And somehow they asked me to be in a reading cause I met someone there when there was performances at the Cannon theater in Beverly Hills. Do you remember the Cannon theater? in I, Beverly Hills? Yep. I do. Yeah. I, do. I was Sally Struthers, um, daughter-in-law called a Shiksa. I was in some play yeah. reading. Yeah. And I was her daughter-in-law and I, I got to be in a play reading with Sally Struthers. So, um, yeah, it's amazing. Like these, some people don't even think to be in a theater group or to work on your craft. 
or to be in plays, but there the there's so many top working actors, writers, directors, and producers who do plays and do theater and who do form writers groups. So I'm so yeah. glad that um because so you so you did the Cornets Writer Lab and then um how did you so you stayed in touch with Ralph Gunningheim, who I just want to know Ralph Gunningheim once again is co-founder and vice president of Pixar, who's a producer on Hello, Toy Story. Toy Story, right? So spoke, Hello. So spoke on your campus, uh, uh, Carnegie Mellon. Am I saying that right? Yep. Yeah. I think you can say it either way. It's, it's either Carnegie. I think the more the purists will call it Carnegie, and I do occasionally call it Carnegie, but you know, no one's gonna give you a hard time if you call it Carnegie. And There's then so. So you kept in touch with him. And so how did you get your first break of writing animation? Like how can you tell, share that with us a little bit? Sure. Um, the first break I had, actually, the, the first break I had was writing for Disney, writing some of the books for Disney. Um, I was an executive assistant because <laughs> at some point everyone's been an executive assistant all over Hollywood. That's just kind of how it works. So this time I'm... Um, an executive assistant at oh, no, we, so I'm at Disney. So your executive executive assistant where at Disney? Uh, Buena Vista Home Entertainment. So okay. basically, it's the home entertainment division. Oh, sure. Right? And I'm in the business and legal affairs department. So I'm you know I'm assisting lawyers and stuff. Oh my gosh. But I'm taking advantage, and they're they're actually really good people. I have to say. Um, I call them my, you know, word accountants because, you know, these are not the people that take you to court. These, these are the ones that, you know, form the contracts and everything. Um, and it really great people actually. But what I, one of the things I would do again, you know, when I wasn't working, I was, you know, trying to make things happen. So I would go on the internal email and, you know, before I was on LinkedIn, essentially Disney's internal email was my LinkedIn and I would write emails to other professionals at Disney who were in the departments or doing the sorts of things that I wanted to do. So I was writing, you know, directors, editors, whatever, whoever would talk to me. And I would basically say, you know, hi, here's who I am. Um, could I buy you a cup of coffee and just ask you some questions? And that's all I would ever say. I'd never asked anybody for a job. I just wanted to pick their brain, you know, and I'd, and I'd offer to buy them coffee or lunch or whatever. And very rarely did I ever actually even have to buy them coffee or lunch because people love to talk about themselves. So I uh, connected with this editor at Disney Publishing, and we we clicked over our, our ideas about you know what sort of stories Disney should be telling. So John is uh, telling us how he had met a fantastic editor that you became friends, and then. Yeah, so so we go and have lunch, decide that, hey, we're really of the same mind, and she's working on this project at the time that has to deal with the Disney princes. Not the princesses, which, you know, obviously Disney did a lot with, but but with the, they were thinking about, she was going to pitch them the idea of doing the same thing, but with all the guys, right? Prince Philip, Prince Charming, you know, whatever, who we both felt like we're just really interchangeable. You know, no one really knows the stories of the, of the princes because they don't really get developed. So she was at the time was developing a project that she was going to pitch in New York. Um, and so she asked me if I wanted to come help her work on it. 
And so what I would literally do, it was like, it's like that movie secret of my success with Michael J. Fox. I would get done as an assistant over in home entertainment. And then on my lunch hour, I would come over to her office and we would be working on this presentation that she was going to pitch to, to New York. Unfortunately, it never went anywhere. It should have, but didn't. <laughs> but what happened is after sometime later, after I left Disney, she needed someone to write a Sleeping Beauty story. They'd had an author who, for whatever reason, dropped out of the project, and they had two weeks to get this thing done. So she remembered me. We'd stayed in touch. And so she, she emailed me and said, hey, what do you think about writing Sleeping Beauty? And like any good writer, my first answer was, yes, of course. <laughs> you know, I'll figure out how to write it later, but yes, I'm there. <laughs> and we took the, we were actually on winter break. So the, my wife at the time and I had taken the kids to Tahoe to go skiing. And so during the day I would be skiing and during the evening I had my laptop and I was writing um, Sleeping Beauty's Wedding. I got, I got to be the guy to decide what happened at Sleeping Beauty's Wedding. Oh, what no. happened after happily ever after that's my that was my claim to fame and i turned it in i turned it in early they liked the story and then from there you know it's like with anything once you get that first opportunity if you can deliver the next one comes a little bit easier and a little bit easier and so i started you know they started asking me if i wanted to to write other stories and so that's how i ended up getting to write for frozen um I got to write the handbook uh, on um, Incredibles 2. So I got to to write about all the superheroes and their powers, <laughs> but where no one had really decided what the powers were, I got to make up all the details. Like I'm, I'm the guy who figured out just how fast Dash actually can run oh, um, wow. and that sort of thing. And it was great because whatever I couldn't find, I mean, I have to research it, but whatever I couldn't find research or evidence for, I got to make up. And so I would present them, you know, ideas about, you know, powers that we haven't heard about or whatever, or how it all comes about, how, how it all came to be. And this all had to be signed off on by Pixar. So it's all legit. <laughs> they signed off on whatever I came up with. So I was, that was a proud moment that, you know, Pixar gave it the seal of approval. So. Oh, and that's so fantastic using your imagination and coming with the special powers. That is so fun. Yeah. It is the coolest dad job ever. <laughs> you know, my kids are like, what are you doing? Oh, I've got to, you know, I've got to watch the Incredibles tonight. Want to join me? Yeah. <laughs> or I'm, I'm sitting at Starbucks and I'm watching Frozen. You know, here I'm a grown man watching Frozen at Starbucks, you know, and, and moms are coming in with their daughters. and They're like, you know, pulling them away from me like, oh, stay away from that guy. He's weird. You know. <laughs> Like, no, I'm working. Honestly, I'm doing research. I'm legit. <laughs> I promise. Um, That's so awesome. And then, so yeah, and so that that was great. And then somewhere in between all of that, I got, I got the chance to write for Tom and Jerry. I got an offer to write an episode of Tom and Jerry. And that's when, you know, things got super fun. <laughs> The cat and the mouse. The cat and the, the mouse. The cat and the mouse, yeah. Catch me if you can. <laughs> What's that? Catch me if you can. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? And if and if he ever does, the show's over. Yeah. So, you know, so we can never have, we can have them get close. There are actually, you know, there are a lot of rules with Tom and Jerry, actually. Yeah, it's funny me. reading the, getting the writer's guide, you know, the writer's handbook from the, the story editor you know these are the things that you can't do with tom and jerry 
these are the things you can do. These are the rules. <laughs> it's like building a um, house, right? These are the specs and speculations. You know, it can be like three stories. It, it can't be four stories with a pool because the pool might start dripping in and cave down. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, during one of the, I think one of the first seasons I was writing for them, it was like, you know, Tom can't be seen using like a cell phone, like, you know, no trendy stuff, right? So they can't just be, you know, on Facebook or whatever, or, there, or it has to be some gener super generic version, but anything that's like too trendy, for example, and obviously the big one, you know, Tom and Jerry don't talk, <laughs> even though in the past there are, there is a precedent for Tom actually singing, but, you know, that was rare. So anything, anytime you absolutely actually had to have somebody talk, you had to give those lines to the supporting cast, you know, Spike, Butch, or, you know, if they had owners at that time, you know, <laughs> Spike and Butch. But otherwise <laughs> you had to figure out a way to do it, you know, wordlessly, which is a, which is a great exercise in how to write for film and TV is to write for Tom and Jerry. Right. And you did it. It's all about show and not tell with them. Yeah. And so let's talk about like your Illuminous, um, Let's can we talk about some? Sure, I would love to as, as again, as much as I can. <laughs> so just like with how with COVID, you know, you've done all these amazing things. Um, I started a company with two other guys here in the Bay Area. Of course, when we when we got the idea, we hadn't gone into quarantine yet. We didn't know we were going to be going into quarantine. But we've only had two meetings in person and everything else has been done completely virtually uh, since we started in March. I think we, we officially opened in March. So that's been kind of weird. All of our staff meetings have been by zoom uh, or Google meets or whatever. And that's kind of strange, but uh, luminous blue limited is an animation company here in the Bay area um, that I've founded with uh, Norman Pratt and Randy Gall both who are incredibly talented and uh, experienced professionals. Uh, I mean, they've worked for 20th Century Fox, and Pixar and Lucasfilm. And I mean, it's amazing to be um, teamed up with these guys. But essentially, we met on LinkedIn. Norman and I met on LinkedIn, actually, because, you know, we were doing the same sorts of things, had the same sort of passion about telling really good animated stories that were kid-friendly, family-friendly, you know, but had that same sort of magic as the stories that we knew growing up, right? So the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the uh, Star Wars, you know, E.T., Back to the you know, the kinds of stories that you go home and if you're a kid, you're playing with the action figures <laughs> or you're, you're going back and you're seeing the movie several times and you're constantly quoting lines from it, you know, the stuff um, that, that really affect you and influence, you know, who you come to be. And we wanted to tell stories like that, you know, like the ones we grew up with. And when Norman and I discovered that we were of the same mindset about that, we had that sort of, well, hey, my uncle has a barn, let's put on a show moment. And so he's like, well, let's start a company. I want to do something. And there's so much talent in the Bay Area. Um, even after you take into account all the all those amazing people who've already been sucked up by you know Lucasfilm and Pixar and Disney, there's still a lot of amazing talent here. It's not all just in 
LA or New York or Georgia or whatever. And we decided, you know, there's an, there's an opportunity to do something here. So Norman knew Randy, who's an amazing visual uh, developer, designer. And so he was sort of like the third piece, the third leg of the, the tripod. And so we're now developing stories for typically an audience is eight to 14, you know, uh, any gender, any culture. And uh, try to, we're trying to take stories somewhere different and also take advantage of the, the technology now that you know, didn't even exist when we were watching movies as kids. You know, the Unreal Game Engine, um, virtual reality, augmented reality, you know, real-time animation. There's a lot of really fun and exciting technology to use, and we're, we're having a great time figuring out how to use that to tell the sort of story that will connect with kids and families all over the world. You know, there, there's so many amazing stories to tell, and they're not all just here in the U.S. You know, there's legends and cultures that have so many amazing narratives to tell. And, and we're seeing a lot of that now, I think, more and more, um, you know, with Disney's Raya and the Last Dragon. You're seeing a lot of stories coming in from China. Oh, you know, the, the streaming platforms have been great for that because they've they've exposed us to stories from other places that aren't the same old, you know, action shoot 'em up kind of thing that we kind of see, uh, or that we we've seen a lot of. So, um, so that's what we want to do. We want to dig in and and explore those. Uh, we've got uh, our first slate of projects that we're developing and uh, starting to go out to you know, producers and studios and whatever, you know, we're starting to put our wares out there on the market. Um, whether it's a, a television show that we're developing that celebrates the, the power of a child's imagination or a sort of an urban time traveling adventure, um, or another, what we call sort of like our star Wars, you know, our, our big epic project that, um, set in the future, uh, it's a sci-fi adventure that travels through different dimensions. Um, you know, we're just having a great time figuring it out and uh, getting our stuff out there. And then someday when COVID's done, we may actually see each other in person again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and to be able to hug someone or, you know, right? do you elbows know, or like one of, air, air, air high fives, air hugs. Right. Well, one of the advantages is we haven't had to worry about you know, renting office space yet, <laughs> you know, we don't have any, we don't have very much overhead actually, because everybody's, you know, working from home. Um, and I think it's because great. we are focused in animation, you know, we have been, you know, the things that we want to do and our, our objectives and our goals are pretty COVID resistant, right? Cause we're not, we're not shooting live action. We don't have to worry about people on a set. You know, we're just focused on telling a great story and leveraging technology to give an audience a really fresh and exciting and hopefully inspiring, you know, story experience. Yeah. And um, we can't wait. So uh, so you're going to be pitching the stuff that you worked on. So it will be on a major streaming TV or film platform in the future, right? That's what, Yeah. That's where our target is, I think, at this point. Um, you know, the again, drawing on the experience and the, 
connections that Norman and Randy have, you know, we'll have an opportunity to go to some, some of the big players, but we're also looking at, you know, any, you know, anybody that makes sense. It doesn't necessarily have to be a Netflix or, uh, or, uh, HBO max, although that would be great. I mean, let's face it. I, I would take that meeting in a heartbeat as I think anybody HBO, would. HBO, HBO, call, uh, luminous, uh, there you go. You heard it from her. You heard it from Marilyn. <laughs> Luminous she has Blue the number Limited. one podcast all over the world. She has her finger on the pulse. Uh, well, um, my, my kids' podcast, Enchanting Book Readings, hit is 1.5% global. So, uh, so yeah, that's a, it's a 1.5% global. <laughs> there you go. Well, get in touch with Marilyn's kid. <laughs> kids' podcast. What are talking about? Um, yeah, have... Contact them, have them set up a meeting, and we'll, we will come and talk to you. I'm sure they're going to contact Zoom you. Or... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Where, quickly, where does everyone keep up in touch with you? Um, where can they keep up with you? Do you have a website or Facebook? I do have a website. It's Neutron Boy Productions 1. Uh, or new, Actually, it's NeutronProds1.com. Um, or I'm the best way to find out about what's going on with me would be through my LinkedIn page. Cause that's actually where I, I focus most of my either announcements or, um, updates. And then of course there's the luminous blue, um, site, which is luminousblue.tv.com, but, but TV. And that's John Edwards with an S and a neutron. Is it neutron boy again? Can you say that one more time? Yes. It's, uh, the web, my website, my personal website is n e u t r o n b o y, and then p r o d s one dot com. It used to be a lot easier to remember, but I had to. I, I lost the uh, website when I, I my router got hacked. Well, thank story. you so much for.